look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, and my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm uh, I'm good. It was a busy week, interesting week. Lots to talk about. Can I just say something, man? Sure. Twenty five thousand steps. What? I did twenty five thousand steps. Well, you were pacing that much in your office from from the beginning of March. But the point <laughs> is, I'm now counting my steps. So say congratulations, Faisal. Was that good? I'm counting my steps. Say congratulations. Okay, congratulations. Wow, no support here. None. Wow. I don't know if that's good or bad, <laughs> right? What's Okay. Um, I got to tell you, what gets measured, right? Gets done. Gets done, can be managed, can be adjusted. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today um, because we've got some details on what's going to be measured from a federal budget perspective. Correct. The economics impact of it, um, the benefits of it, uh, some of the things that are going to be, uh, that were mentioned in the budget are... Um, Pointless. Well, you know, the, 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 they, they the, didn't help. The high level question is: Is this just truly a uh, a political budget? This is a pre election budget, uh, or is it an economic budget? And we're gonna we're gonna dig into that question. There's lots of different bits and pieces to it, but let's understand from an economics point of view: Does this going to help our country? Yeah. Okay. And and in what degree? And we'll talk about some of the specifics of the uh, of the different elements. And what can Alberta do? Yeah. I think that's a key thing. We need to talk about what can Alberta do. We're heading into an election, so I wanted to know what uh, the budget has an impact on our province as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got a couple of segments uh, with Avery Schenfeld, who's the chief economist at CIBC. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, I want to talk about uh, just sort of the week that was, because it, it was a busy week. Um, aside from the budget, we won't talk about that. Um, we'll, um, we won't steal Avery's thunder on that. But we, had, uh, we, we saw, again, maybe some volatility return. We saw some conflicting messages. We've got some of you know, the stuff that we've been talking about for a long time at a high level. We've got Brexit going on. We've got... Uh, we've got the U.S. Federal Reserve making an interest rate decision. I shouldn't say that, but their communication was very interesting. There's lots of stuff that's affected markets this week. I've seen more punting with the European Union than I have in any football game. Let's start there. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's almost becoming a joke, in my opinion. Um, so Brexit got kicked down. They kicked the can down the road until uh, mid-April. They're going to have to go back. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, is going to go back to the British Parliament and ask them to vote for a third time, if they can, because the Speaker of Parliament has said maybe not, but if they can, they're going to vote for a third time. And if it ends up as the previous two did, then uh, they're either crashing out in early May, mid-May. Or they have to ask for an extension. An an, an extended extension, like I'm talking a year or greater, and then start over, right? So they've accomplished nothing. We're here we are, three years after the referendum vote. We've yep. accomplished nothing other than continue to create uncertainty in the European Union. Are you surprised? Uh, disappointed, frustrated, surprised. I don't know. I guess it's a political environment today. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I think in the political climate that we have globally, no matter which region of the world you're looking at, there is so much um, resistance for major change or there's a resistance for status quo depending on which part of the world you're looking at and so these types of major changes that happen in the world like a brexit because it's a a big deal Mm -hmm. how to divorce out of a group is a big deal like that um having that that resistance is is not surprising to me um i'm not the parliament in the uk themselves weren't convinced that this was what the public wanted 
even after a referendum. Well, again, here you have a referendum that was uh, sort of two percentage points, right? And so maybe it goes back to the referendum rules right to the beginning. You can't have maybe that thin a majority determine something like this because we end up in a place like this. I got to tell you, I'm getting to the point personally where I don't particularly care what happens. Just make it happen. And that's what the market's saying. That's exactly what the market's saying. make a decision and let's move on. That's right. Whatever. And And that's the same thing that people are saying between U.S. and China trade. Right. Just make a decision so we can move on. Right. Now, the Fed made a decision this week. Well, yeah, the Fed. Um, the so the Federal expect- Reserve by the United U.S. States. Federal Reserve. Right? That's right. Yeah. Interest rate, interest rate policy, and monetary policy is very important. The Fed being the sort of the the gorilla in the uh, uh, in the zoo here on this one. And and there was an expectation that the U.S. Fed uh, was going to maintain its in- current interest rate policy, was going to walk back the market's expectations from two interest rate increases this year to one. And then they were going to stop the quantitative redu- reduction, so they would end that uh, uh, their bond program sort of around um, October, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So what we actually got was a bit of a leapfrog effect. The Fed got more aggressive, more dovish, okay, in in walking back those expectations, and in fact walked us back to no interest rate increases in the U.S. this year. Yep. And the effect of that was very interesting to watch the trading. Um, so immediately what happened was the equity markets reversed a negative position and went positive in North America on the news. This was Thursday. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday. Wednesday, Thursday. It's yeah. all the same. Yeah. <laughs> One big blurry mess now. <laughs> but what happened by the end of that day uh, was Wednesday. Excuse me. End of that day, yeah. uh, they, the markets went negative. And I, was, you know, I had a conversation at the end of the day with uh, McFarlane doing the Joe McFarlane about the market end. And I said, this was really interesting because – um, normally, this the market had to determine, did they see this as a dovish move, i.e., this is stimulative in effect by keeping interest rates low, or did, this, did the Fed just send us a message that they think the economic situation in the United States and their economy is way worse than what we expected? Correct. And so that's we saw a negative. So where do, we, where do people go to right. when, they, when they hear news like that? They, the stock market's doing weird things. Wednesday down, Thursday yeah. up, Friday down. Like they, it's, there's no clear sign. Where do we, where should the person go to to get somewhat of what the, the economy's looking at? And, and so I look at the bond market. I look at where the interest rates are going and there's an, a yield curve that we look at, which is where basically we're saying longer term interest rates should be higher than shorter term interest rates. And just this week, mm-hmm. the, 10-year government bond in the United States in the United States was within 10 basis points oh, within two at sorry one two point. basis points yeah. of the three, three month, month yeah. interest rate that means the market's saying that the interest rates in three months from now are going to be the same as it is 10 years from now and the last time we had this so this is spooking the markets now right. is in 2007 right before the major crash right. so do you think Canadians are ready for a recession, if that actually happens, in their retirement? Um, do I, so gen, the answer is generally no. Okay, and I agree. And right. I'll tell you why. I, my view is, and you can jump in after this. Um, from all the people who've approached us and said, can you take a look at my portfolio and my financial situation and, right. and give me a second opinion, okay? The positioning of their portfolio is so heavily weighted for growth, that the portfolio does not have any room for error. Right. And what I'm seeing in a lot of people's portfolios is 
the the concept of growth is there for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. five, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. And that if a recession was to come, and more importantly, a recession that was to surprise us, and the markets do tumble, and I'm talking 10, 15, 20%, a lot of people's situation are going to have to change. Mm-hmm. And so I'm concerned that Canadians are not ready for a recession in their retirement. You know, there was an interesting, we met with part of our economic advisory uh, board, uh, this was last week, but it was a comment that you and I talked about um, as well, and it's it stuck with me. They said, we're in a long-term business that's, mari- uh, that's uh, measured in the short term. Correct. So, and, and, and here's the thing, retirement is clearly a long-term issue, right? Yes. But if you're improperly structured, the short term can have a major impact. And I, and I think that, you know, it was a statement that really resonated with me. And so when I said, generally speaking, I don't think they're ready, um, let's forget about the emotional impact for, for uh, a little bit. Yep. Although I think we can address that in the fourth segment. But from a structural perspective around retirement, um, we, we all understand that, you know, retirement hopefully is going to be a very long period of time. That's a long-term issue. But a short-term influence like a market pullback you've talked about can materially or seriously derail Okay, somebody's either enjoyment of the experience in the short term or, in fact, derail the entire long-term process. Correct. So the, the, the structure, I mean, we always call them the buckets, right? We, these buckets is we, we have to acknowledge that there can be short-term problems. Those short-term problems can be compounded into a long-term problem if we don't take care of, you know, of that short-term. Proper structure. Proper structure. And I think when the, one of the pieces that you talk about in our monthly seminar is what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. The sequence of returns, the financial impact right. if um, the markets don't participate in your favor, right. if you're lucky or unlucky, those types of things. Right. We talk about that stuff. And the way that you present it, I think, is fantastic for people to literally see how someone has to either really change their lifestyle in retirement right. or they will go to zero prematurely Right. Right. if they don't. That's a huge change to what people... And I don't think you know people are anticipating the impact of a recession and are prepared for that. Right. So I think we need to have that conversation. Now, we're going to do that mm-hmm. on Tuesday, March 26th, 8.30 p.m. at the Sheraton Four Points Hotel in the West Calgary. You need to reserve your seats, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can register online at morethemoneyradio.com. Okay. Are you interested if there's anything in the federal budget for you, for Calgary and Alberta, and for the you know nationally, if this is going to be good for us, then tune in after the break. We're going to talk to Avery Schenfeld, chief economist at CIBC, and get his take on the specifics of this budget. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. We had a little event take place this past week, my friend. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, the budget. Oh, that thing. That little thing. That little thing. No one paid attention to it. You know why? <laughs> why? Because the... Because the election was announced here in Alberta. That's true. We did. Uh, so people are saying budget. What budget? We did get uh, a bit distracted <laughs> on that, didn't we? Yeah. But the rest of the country was paying attention. True, and we need to be paying attention here as well. And we're going to go through some of the high uh, the high level details of this, and we've got a terrific guest to help us understand sort of the impacts at an economic level and some of the key changes in the budgets. That's uh, Avery Schenfeld. He's the chief economist at CIBC. Uh, Avery, welcome to the show. 
Uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, and thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, to bring some sense to this. Um, maybe let's start at, at, at just a high level, and I'd, I'd like to get your um, your input on the, the federal budget, sort of what we got versus what maybe you expected, and then we can dig into some of the details. So I had written a commentary uh, the week ahead of the budget where I called it Check, Please. And basically my view was that this was an election year, that the government, while not having an infinite amount of money at its disposal, had a little bit of room uh, to spend a little more and and give out some checks across the country uh, while still basically sticking to the deficit projections it had uh, laid out a year earlier. Right. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. They, they're basically staying with the same deficit outlook, but using the extra revenue that had rolled in um, to, uh, to try to, I guess, please uh, some target voters here and there across the country. Well, and let's talk about that because, uh, you know, when I saw the details of it um, and, I, and I read your article, um, you know, there was a lot of boxes that were checked. So, you know, the question is from, from maybe an economic perspective, I don't know what it's going to do from a voting perspective, we'll avoid the politics, but from an economics perspective, um, you know, what's the overall impact of this? Was it spread too thin? Did, uh, you know, did they make an impact from, from a stimulative perspective? What, what's your take on it? If you take as the alternative that they had just essentially pocketed the extra revenue and therefore aimed at smaller deficits, mm-hmm then this slightly bigger spending budget adds a little bit to growth. But we're not talking about huge numbers here. I mean, I know there's a lot written about, oh, the government's running deficits, but the deficits are actually less than 1% of GDP. And if you compare that internationally to where the U.S. is, where many European countries are, those are fairly small budget deficits. So they have relatively small impacts in terms of lifting growth. You're talking a few decimal places really on the growth rate. And in terms of the national economy, remember that Ontario, for example, is headed for some fiscal restraint. We'll see what happens in Alberta, but we may be headed for some a bit of fiscal restraint in Alberta as well. So when you add it all up, really not moving the needle much on the overall size of the economy one way or the other, and instead, it's really a more of a microeconomic story in the some sense that certain taxpayers, certain types of households, um, some local governments will have a little more money to spend in their part of the economy. Yeah. Okay. So, from a macro perspective, we'll call it kind of uh, we'll call it kind of neutral. From a currency perspective, do you think this had an impact on Canadian dollar? It it didn't really because you know most of this was anticipated. We knew it was an election year, so we weren't expecting. Um, we certainly weren't expecting tax increases. We weren't expecting a move to tighten fiscal policy because you know that acts to slow growth. And in an election year, it's not really what you normally aim to do. Um, and instead, really, the Canadian dollar is now bouncing around with more about news on the U.S. economy. So mm-hmm. on days where the U.S. stops talking about rate hikes, the Canadian dollar gained a little bit, uh, then we give up that ground, really hasn't moved a lot as, as a result of the budget itself. Avery, when you look at all the features of the budget, um, who ha- who would you say out of the Canadian population benefits the most out of it? Like, who are they targeting? The, the biggest beneficiaries are actually people who work in construction on infrastructure projects, because the biggest money that was actually doled out here was a one-time grant of a couple billion dollars to municipalities to try to grease the wheels 
and get some of the infrastructure projects uh, out of the planning room and into the construction site in the next few years. And in addition, there was another billion dollars given to a program run by an association of municipalities that does retrofitting of buildings for mm-hmm. energy savings. So mm-hmm. if you put that all together, there's another $3 billion aimed at essentially the construction sector in one form or another, and they probably end up being uh, the biggest winners. Dairy farmers are getting a bit because uh, they've given up some quota room to the Europeans and the Asians and some of the trade treaties we've signed. So they're also probably a winner. And then there were a whole laundry list of other target beneficiaries, you know, new home buyers and so on. But a lot of these actually are pretty small potatoes in terms of the dollars involved. Yeah, I think that was the general consensus, uh, Faisal and Avery. You can comment on this is that, uh, again, spread spread pretty thin, right? Correct. I mean, lots of boxes to check here. Clearly, uh, you know, a pre-election uh, budget and we're checks for a little bit of, you know, for everybody kind of a thing, but not enough to move the needle in any one particular area, save maybe they can get some construction projects, like some infrastructure projects moving, right, uh, that have been on the books. So That's Avery, right. Just wanted to That's jump in there right. in regards to that part. Do you, do you feel that even though the federal governments have provided some sort of benefit for infrastructure to the municipalities, do you think that that's actually going to – you're going to see shovels in the ground because of this? Because we've, we've heard about all this infrastructure th- uh, process in the past, uh, and we, we don't always see the shovels hit the ground yet. No, we haven't. And that's been the problem is that the federal government had already allocated billions and billions to infrastructure spending, but it's all cost shared with local governments and provincial governments. And what the data have shown is that those local governments were uh, in a bit of a pinch in many cases Mm -hmm. and couldn't come up with their share of the money. So essentially what Ottawa has done is said, okay, we promised you some gas tax money and effectively we're going to double that. So um, here's the money you needed to participate with us in the programs we already provided funding for. And I do think this money will get spent. Even then, of course, it you know it it'll take a couple of years before we see uh, these things roll out. There, you know, nothing starts tomorrow. So, Avery, I want to I want to just ad- um, have you address the the debt and the deficits for a moment. We get a lot of questions from people, a lot of concern uh, about uh, debt and deficits um, that we run in in Canada. I'd like you to maybe just comment on the financial health of Canada, where our debt stands, perhaps relative to others. And the idea that we're, we're, you know, you've already said it's small, but we are continuing to add to that debt through through deficits at a time, of course, when we were supposed to be balancing the books. How concerned should the average Canadian be about all of this? You know, I'm not going to sound like a typical economist on this or a typical bank economist, but I don't think Canadians should be really concerned at all about it. Um, the right way to look at it is not to measure debt, which is a stock number uh, with annual output. You really have to compare apples to apples. So what you really want to ask is, is the interest that we're paying on government debt, is that rising as a share of the economy? And the answer is, at the federal level, it's actually plunged. So if you go back to the early 90s, when economists like me were saying, we need to get these deficits down, we need to get the debt burden down, 
debt was the interest on debt was running at around six percent of Canadian GDP. That's a pretty high number. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, it's sitting around one percent of GDP, and it's never been lower. You can go back to the 1960s; it was double that, around two percent of GDP. So, we're in a low interest rate era. We paid down a lot of debt in the 90s, and really these relatively small deficits haven't created a burden. If there is an issue, it's at the provincial level. Uh, So Ontario has a lot of work to do to get its debt levels down, as do some of the Atlantic uh, provinces. Alberta hasn't built up a big debt yet because it's really only been since oil prices fell that we've been running uh, large deficits. Uh, But those deficits can't go on forever. And as taxpayers, we really want to leave room for fiscal restraint, if it comes, to Mm -hmm. be done at the provinces, because there's one taxpayer, and actually every time a provincial government borrows, they pay more in interest, they pay a higher interest rate than the federal government. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to have to live with a little bit of a slower economy because we're tightening belts in government... Let's do it at the provincial level where the interest costs are, in fact, higher. Okay, Avery, we're going to have to maybe take that as a point to uh, take a quick break, but we'll come back after the break and we'll pick up this conversation about uh, about the debt interest rates and some of the specifics uh, of the budget in just a minute. But before we take a break, Faisal, we should remind everybody about our upcoming seminar. Yeah, that's on Tuesday, March 26th. 8.30 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. Now, you need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or go online to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Welcome back here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR. And More Than Money, having a great conversation with uh, Avery Schenfeld, uh, Chief Economist at CIBC, about the uh, the budget, Faisal. We talked a little bit in that uh, last segment about sort of the high-level economics of the budget, but there's a whole bunch of budget specifics here, right? You asked a question um, earlier about who does this budget benefit, and we sort of started to talk about that. Avery, maybe let's get into some of the uh, the specific details uh, of the budget, and maybe give me some of the highlights or give us some of the highlights of what uh, what you thought were of particular interest. So for individuals, there wasn't, of course, a big massive tax cut uh, yep. in anyone's uh, uh future, at least in this budget. But there were some specific credits that the government has offered to help uh, certain people in the country. So if, for example, you're, uh, you're now working, and uh, but you're thinking that at some point uh, you'll need some retraining, you want a career shift at some point, uh, down the road you will be able to uh, basically get a tax credit to help cover roughly half the cost of a modest dose of training. So you're going to be basically accumulating $250 a year in a fictitious account. Now, you don't actually have to deposit the money. Um, and then down the road, beginning in, uh, I believe, uh, you know, three years from now, you'll be able to withdraw uh, what's there and get a credit for retraining. So that's, uh, that's certainly a benefit to people thinking that their career might need a shift at some point or they may need some additional skills. There was also a uh, a new and uh, somewhat nifty home buyers plan to aimed at helping first time home buyers of relatively moderate income or less. Um, it, I don't think this is a huge uh, game changer for people who work in cities with high house prices. Ironically, the limits on this program rule them rule them out really for right. people trying to buy a house in Toronto or Vancouver. 
but for someone in Calgary or Edmonton, uh, they may be able to get an interest-free mortgage for 5 or 10% of their uh, house price. 10% if it's a new home, 5 if it's an existing home. Um, that might help uh, in terms of the monthly payments. They're also letting you withdraw more from an RSP, provided you basically pledge to pay it back without paying tax to help you with the down payment. So that limit is going up to 35000 It used to be $25,000. i am I'm a bit curious about this, and, and, and Avery, you may or may not have an opinion on this, but um, I'm curious as to if you do have an opinion on the, the home buyer's plan sort of pulling out of the, an RSP, which is a retirement savings account, to buy a home today. Um, and I don't know, what I don't know is is the repayment um, effectiveness. How many, how often are people taking money out of their RSPs to buy a house today and not recontributing to their RSP to fund their retirement? I, I don't know if you know that or not. So I don't have the statistics, but this is a specific plan. So you could, of course, withdraw money from your RSP, mm-hmm. pay the full tax on it, mm-hmm. and and then use it for a down payment. But most people will try to avoid that if they can, because the whole point of putting money in the RSP was to defer the income tax when you did that, and you're, you're paying it up front. What these plans let you do is essentially you're investing some of your own RSP in your own mortgage. So you're almost lending yourself money from your own RSP. Uh, then you have to pay it back over a 15-year period starting uh, two years after withdrawal was made. So you do have to start making those payments. It's not, in other words, an interest-free loan. It's it's a loan that you have to start paying back. Otherwise, you, you get hit by a tax bill. And usually, being hit by a tax bill is an incentive to get on with paying it back. So I think it's a, it's a reasonable approach for some people. Ideally, um, it's sort of a last resort. And what I always tell people is, rather than rely on schemes like this, buy a house that's a little bit cheaper. Right. Um, you know, there's no sin in saying, I'll buy a house without the second bathroom if that's what I can afford if that's what I can afford without taking money out of my RSP, or indeed, if that's what I can afford without relying on, you know, that partic- a particular government program. Right. You clearly haven't shared a house with Dave Popovich. That's why you're saying that. Because <laughs> um, if you did, you'd ask for not only a second, but a third bathroom as well. <laughs> so what's, what's the economic impact? Is this actually benefiting the economy when we have a home buyer's plan or when we're trying to incent individuals with a certain income level to be, to be getting into the house? Like, is, is it, is, are we doing them a disservice or, or are we helping not only them, but the economy as well with programs like this? Well, you could say it's a helping hand, but really I'd say it's more of a helping finger because it's it's not worth a whole hand. Uh, you know, this, if you, if you do the math, they've set up a limit on how many people can get this program. And by putting restrictions on how much income you can have and how big the mortgage can be, it adds up to something like a half a percent of all mortgages originated in a given year. So we're not talking about a game changer at all for the Canadian housing market. So yes, people who benefit from, for example, that uh, interest-free loan from the CMHC uh, will be happy with that. But we're not talking about you know millions of Canadians or anything close to that. We're in the thousands of people. So it's a it's a helping hand for a small number of people or a helping finger for the economy as a whole. It's, it's, it's really the federal government trying to show it's doing something about a problem that really comes down to just 
housing supply in some of the busiest cities in the country. We need to get more housing built. We need to improve public transit so that people can live further away uh, because that opens up more land for housing development. Those are the real solutions, not really these programs per se. So, Avery, if you were to to, uh, be in charge of the budget prior to it was announced, what would you have wanted to see in this budget that would have helped economically? I think us in Alberta um, are feeling things a little bit different because we're kind of getting hit from both ends. We have got problems within our province. We've got problems that we see that are not benefiting Alberta from the federal government. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, anxiety, I would call it mm-hmm. here in this province. Yeah. So if you were, if you were king for the day, sir, what would it, what would you do in the budget that, or that would be different than what was already announced? So I really don't think that some of the issues are budgetary issues. So for Alberta, the biggest thing the federal government could do would be, of course, what they're trying to do, which is get a pipeline built. I mean, they've laid out billions to buy it. They clearly want to get the pipeline started because their intention is to sell that pipeline. It's not saleable until construction is underway, and that would certainly be a help. I think there's a a need for a much broader review of both tax and regulatory policy in Canada with a view to trying to understand better what makes Canada competitive or not competitive internationally uh, and seeing which of those things can be addressed. I really wasn't expecting to see that in an election year budget. Um, you know, corporate tax reform is not a vote winner with the average voter. Right. Right. Uh, but I think for the next government, and not just again on the tax side, but on the regulatory front, we need to take a, a deeper dive into why companies are choosing Texas rather than Alberta in the energy sector why they're building car plants in Kentucky and Tennessee, but not in Ontario. It's a national issue of national importance. We'll leave it there, Avery. I think that's well said. Thank you very much for your time and helping us understand sort of the nuances and some of the high-level implications of the federal budget. You're welcome. We've been joined by Avery Schenfeld. He's the chief economist at CIBC. Faisal, uh, we've got a... We've got a seminar coming up. Uh, I mean, let's face it: nobody lives on after-tax income. We live on pre-tax. Sorry, nobody lives on pre-tax income. You live on after-tax income, um, and so the budget uh, and taxes are very important to the overall success, right? Proper structure of uh, of a retirement plan. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings and misrepresentation in a portfolio when it comes to tax. Mm-hmm. We're going to demystify that on uh, Tuesday, March 26th, 8:30 p.m. At the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary, you need to reserve your seats, so give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can uh, register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Is emotional baggage ruining your retirement? Let's talk about that after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Emotional baggage. I teased everybody before the break. Emotional baggage. Is emotional baggage actually destroying your retirement? Wow. Yeah. Well, so let's kind of let's give some context and phrase that a little bit. Okay. It was an interesting week. We often, you know, sit around and, and, and we think about what was sort of the commonality of the, the kind of conversations we had during the week. Yep. And there was some there was some interesting conversation. This is not financial. This was about talking to um, clients. Yeah. This is about talking to clients and understanding the context of the conversation we're having with respect to the retirement, their experience, and the emotional reaction to their money. Correct. Okay. Um, I had. A, I'll start with the experience I had because okay. I, I had a, a, a conversation. I had a series of conversations with a family, 
clients of ours. And um, we were trying to come to some consensus on the structure, on the strategy in the different four buckets that we talk about. Gotcha. And I couldn't understand um, what one element that we kept talking about. There was a specific piece of their portfolio that this gal was particularly sensitive to, and I didn't understand or couldn't understand the context of it. And we went through a financial planning process, and Faisal, well, you've seen it. So there's no way we could break this financial plan. They're, they're rock solid. We okay? stress test the financial plan to see that if even if we had negative returns for, forever, for, yeah, forever, the rest of their lives, they were okay. They were fine. That's a very comforting situation. That even if you lost money every year, right. you're still okay. You would think so. Right, you would think so. Mm-hmm. And so, when in this last week we we had a follow up meeting, and we went through it, and I, and I asked the question. I said, "Okay, we know the math is fine. There's no issues here." I said, "I know that. What do you need from us in order to feel a sense of comfort?" Because she's thinking of now retiring. He's already retired. She's thinking of retiring. Got you. Okay. And I'll tell you what came out of the conversation, and, and it was it was a super productive, and, and it was a brilliant. Uh, brilliant meeting at the end of the day. We started to talk about the emotional context around the money. Ah. Okay? Okay. So she had received an inheritance from her dad. Gotcha. Okay? And so this this inheritance money was very near and dear to her heart, and she wanted to make sure it got to the kids. So this wasn't part of the overall portfolio. This was a separate entity. This is a legacy bucket. This is a legacy bucket piece. Okay. It was not, and it was seen very differently from the rest of the assets that they have accumulated throughout the course of their life. And as we had this conversation, she started to share with me, and I won't go through the details of it, but started to share with me her experience with her father and some of the ups and downs that they had and how hard it was for him at the end of the day to pass this money on to accumulate it and then pass it on to them. And so the context of this conversation as it rolled out, you know, uh, myself and, and Sarah, one of our financial planning uh, team members, were sitting there, we're going, ah, I got it, the light bulb's gone on. Now we understand how we can structure this in order to meet all of these various objectives. Beautiful. Okay? So, so the, the context, the conversation, the emotional attachment to that money was such an important piece of the overall planning process. It had nothing to do with numbers. Okay. So I had a very similar interaction with a with a client. Um, inheritance money. Mm-hmm. Before they came to us, they were re- dealing with another advisor. Uh, the portfolio went down. The client said, "I'm uh, I'm frustrated, upset." Shared their emo- shared her emotion with it, and the advisor said, "Well, that's just a paper loss. Don't worry." Ooh. And so, <laughs> typical comment that we hear. In our industry. Right. It's a paper loss. It's not realized until you sell. Right. right. What the advisor, I guess, didn't realize is that where that money came from, that was an inheritance money as well. Right. And so you and I were talking about this on Friday. Do you remember when you're teaching your kid division? Oh, yeah. And you put it on a piece of paper or on a board or something, and there used to be a thing called remainder. Yep. So you're dividing two numbers, and whatever's left over is the remainder. Yep. That is a similar thing when people go through retirement. The remainder of what you've had throughout your life is carried into retirement. So we call, you may call it emotional baggage. You may want to call it a remainder, whatever you want to call yeah. it. You're bringing all of your life experiences to the retirement table. Right. Some of it has to do with how you were raised. Some of it is yep. on how you've made money, lost money. Right. Your relationship with your family members. Right. 
All this stuff comes to the point of retirement, and then you have to make decisions about your future. Mm -hmm. And some of these individuals are still learning about themselves and how they react to things, yep. how, they, how they handle stressful situations. And some of them are able to articulate, uh, is, it, is it me and my emotion, or is it, is it my rational side speaking at this point in time? Right. And those who can articulate that I am reacting emotionally, not rationally, helps the advisor, helps the conversation. Those who react emotionally, it is our job to uncover what those issues really are. Mm -hmm. And that could be because it's inheritance money, or I'm not getting along with my spouse, or I hate where I'm going to when right. I retire, right. or I got fired and now I have to retire, and so now the world looks different. Mm -hmm. And so this remainder, this emotional piece that you bring to retirement will dictate your reaction to your money. Mm -hmm. And it may result in poor decisions being made. Right. I'm not saying it always will, but it may impact. So if you feel that you need to preserve capital and take a lower rate of return because of your emotional fear, that might be negative to your long-term success in your retirement. Mm -hmm. So you need to check those uh, numbers to see if it matches what the emotion is. Well, there, there's an emotional context. There's a story. We were talking about the story. Everybody's got a story. The story. Right? Yeah. I'm going to share another experience. This was a, the previous week, um, but this was a uh, this was a couple uh, that I met with, and we were uh, doing some strategy review, um, and there were some tears in this in this meeting because she, you know, she went. We were talking about the ups and downs and the volatility of the last quarter, and um, he wasn't at all bothered, and she was. Uh, bothered by it in their growth bucket. Um, but she, you know, the conversation, she was very open about this, stemmed from her story. She grew up poor, dirt poor. She said, we had nothing, five kids and nothing. Mm -hmm. And here we are today. And um, she was a stay-at-home uh, mom in this relationship. And she said, my husband's done a great job of building this capital, but I can't stand to see it go down because it, it brings up the history, mm -hmm. my experience when I was young. And, um, I have and to relive the story potentially. Exactly. So it, it's been an interesting uh, couple of weeks. That's why I thought we, you know, when we discuss this, we should do a segment on this because the emotional context, the story that people have that they bring to this point of retirement influences the way they see the money. It influences the way we have to invest the money to accommodate for those influences, and we have to protect them against making an emotional decision that can have an adverse effect longer term. And this is a challenge in our industry, and I'll tell you my personal challenge, because math dictates my actions. Okay, I don't have emotion behind money. I don't have emotion behind the math to help people reach their financial goals. Mm -hmm. So it's a challenge for someone like me to actually understand what the emotion or the story is and how we have to tweak it. Because sometimes what's good for math right. is bad for the person. Right, exactly. And sometimes what's good for the person doesn't make sense mathematically. Right. Exactly and that's okay. Right. Yep. But that has to have a discussion, a conversation, a mutual agreement that we're living by certain rules. Right. 
or understandings. Right. And often it's a process, right? So um, so if there's somebody that's incredibly nervous about risk, well, you don't want to have 100% equities and experience that. But you can, over time, educate, right? Help them understand, put in place structure and the buckets to make sure that the different pieces handle all of the different goals and objectives. And this is essentially what you know our our whole practice is built on is that the complexity of retirement including the emotional uh, po- portion of it is built on the fact that we have different goals and objectives than we did when we were 30 or 40 years old correct when you had a paycheck coming in and all you wanted everything to do was to grow just get bigger one simple objective and i had a long time horizon to do it that is not the case when you get to this stage the compl- the financial complexity increases and then layer on top of that the emotional complexity of all of this you're vulnerable or exposed right. at that point in time right and that's where the problem lies that when you become vulnerable and you don't have an out right you just can't go back and go right. to work again that's right you can't replenish that right. money that yep. that fear that anxiety level kicks in so i think that's you know I, the the takeaway from this piece is tell your story right just tell your story to your advisor, to your to your financial team, and let them understand where you're coming from right. so they know where you want to go. Right. Because you don't want to hear that that comment that it's just uh you know, hey, it's a long term game. It's uh, it's that's that doesn't satisfy anybody's emotional angst when they're going through fear. But we've got to understand the context of that. Absolutely. Okay, for a couple of math guys, I think we do pretty good there. <laughs> Uh, your comments are welcome. Send them all to Faisal if you Please do. Please do. Yes. (laughs) And we'd love to see you at our next seminar where we're going to talk about the four buckets and how to bulletproof your retirement on Tuesday, March 26th, 8.30 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seats. Give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or register online at morethemoneyradio.com. All right. The whole team looks forward to seeing you there. I want to remind you that any of our past segments today or or beyond, you know, in further into the past we archive those on that was not very eloquent i know we we archive them all on more than money radio.com and you can have them delivered directly to you by searching for more than money chqr on apple podcast or in your favorite podcast app thanks for tuning into another edition of more than money on 770 chqr david popovich and Faisal carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with cibc woodgundy in calgary the views of david popovich and Faisal carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of cibc world markets inc clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors if you are currently a cibc woodgundy client please contact your investment advisor cibc woodgundy is a division of cibc world markets inc a subsidiary of cibc and a member of the canadian investor protection fund and investment industry regulatory organization of canada David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.